This last week, I called Spence, who is one of our donors here at the Dad Tired Ministry, and I just asked him how he heard about Dad Tired and why he decided to give. He said that he was not a big reader, but he wanted to find ways that he can grow as a spiritual leader of his family. He stumbled across the Dad Tired podcast, and what I loved about his story was he said, I just, as a family, we wanted to use every resource that we have that God's given us to really expand the kingdom of God, and he thought that Dad Tired was a great investment into the kingdom. And so uh, I want you to hear his story real quick, real briefly, before we jump into today's episode. My wife is an avid reader, which I'm not. And so I was trying to find a way to obviously become a better dad, better spouse, better Christian, uh, better follower. And we kind of made the decision that we always wanted to be able to give directly to the church. But we also, in addition to that, wanted to give some things, um, some finances to some ministries that were meaningful to us and that we thought, you know, had a great impact on the kingdom. And so we, we really took that time to kind of to look over what means most to us. And your, you know, the ministry Dad Tired was was very key and still is. So that's kind of what it, we reset and wanted to make sure we were putting our resources that we were you know, blessed with where we thought the biggest impact was. Spence is one of 145 guys who have decided to partner with us on a monthly basis. And because of that, tens of thousands of guys are reached around the world with the gospel. They're equipped to become the men that God's called them to be. We would love to have you partner with us to join us. If you want to see that number grow, you want to see more men equipped with the gospel. If you feel like this ministry has been helpful for you and would probably be helpful for more other guys, we'd love to have you come partner with us on a monthly basis. You can do that by going to dadtire.com forward slash give. I'm excited to jump into today's interview. We're going to talk about a lot of really helpful things for you on your journey. But before we do, I want to thank our friends over at Samaritan Ministries for sponsoring today's episode. When it comes to choosing your healthcare provider, one of the most frustrating things can be network restrictions. But there's another way. Samaritan Ministries is a community of Christians who actually pay one another's medical bills without the use of insurance. As a Samaritan member, you can choose the doctors, the treatments, the hospitals that are right for you and your family. Just consider this, a medical emergency arises, you don't have to check with an insurance company to ask which hospital to go to, you just go. And after care is received, your medical bills are sent to Samaritan Ministries and they'll notify members to pray and send money directly to you to help you pay those bills. This direct member-to-member sharing approach is one of the many joys of being a Samaritan member. It's biblical, it's affordable, and you can join today. When the body of Christ comes together to pray and encourage and provide for one another, burdens are lifted and God is glorified. This applies to all areas of life, including health It reminds me of the verse in Galatians 6-2, which says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you're interested in becoming part of this amazing community, you can go to SamaritanMinistries.org forward slash dad tired. Again, that's SamaritanMinistries.org slash dad tired. Chase Pump, you're here, man. Thanks for hanging out with us today. For the audience who may not be super familiar with you, tell us who you are and what you're up to these days. Yeah, well, I'm thrilled to be on the podcast. I'm a fan myself. And I'm uh, first and foremost a pastor. I pastor a church in Springfield, Missouri, and then uh, on the side do some writing. And uh, I'm a dad myself. I've got two kids, an eight-year-old son and a five-year-old daughter. And so we enjoy getting outdoors and having fun and pastoring a church and trying to ride along the way. Yeah, man. Are you able to get outside right now in Springfield, Missouri? This is the weird time of the year with Missouri where it just goes from winter to summer back and forth every day, and then eventually it'll stick and be summer. So it just depends. <laughs> Today's beautiful. Tomorrow's beautiful. But who knows? It could snow three days from now. We'll yeah, see. That's nuts, man. Well, dude, I'm pumped to have a conversation with you today. I'm really interested to hear about your book. I know you, you said you're a pastor and you're shepherding people well, and then you also are writing on the side. But I'd love to hear about the book that you just wrote. 
tell us the title, what the premise was, like why you're writing a book for men. Yeah. So the book is called The Five Masculine Instincts. You know, you put the word masculinity in a book title and it's automatically controversial, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so as a pastor, I've, I've witnessed over the last few years how the men in my congregation have really been wrestling with this question about what is manhood, particularly mm. what is Christian manhood. Yeah. And I've also watched as that's become, unfortunately, a, a controversial conversation. And the way that I describe it in the book is what I'm seeing in a lot of men is malaise. Malaise mm. is this idea that something's off, something's not quite right, but we're not quite sure what it is or how to fix it, can't quite put our finger on it. And I've just witnessed a lot of men who, because of the controversy, have just begun to sort of check out or maybe think that growth or character is not possible or get stuck sort of just digging the trenches of their position in the debate deeper and deeper. Hmm. And so what I wanted the book to be was an acknowledgement. I know this is a hard conversation right now, but a path beyond the controversy that could lead men to just deeper, better conversations about how do we actually grow in Christlikeness? How do we cultivate a better character outside of just the culture's framing of that debate? It's weird, man, because when you, I lived in Portland for the last over a decade. And so you're right. When you say even the word masculine, you just say the word masculine, people are like, oh, geez. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's everybody's an got an opinion and yeah, they're immediately <laughs> trying to like suss out where you are, yeah, right? Like, yeah, where, do you, where do you land on this? Yeah, thing? yeah. And it, it's genuinely confusing. Like, even as a man, I'm a man, obviously, and I work with men. And I'm still genuinely confused at like, where, what is this? What are we talking about? And like, what's offensive? What's not offensive? Where are men supposed to like step up? And then like, where did they cross the line? Like, it's just, it's a weird time to talk about this subject. Where do you think from the secular perspective, I guess, what would they say right now is like, here's the right thing when we're talking about masculinity, here's the wrong thing. Like, how is the world defining manhood, I guess, right now? Yeah, well, it's, it will be no surprise to most listeners that the way the culture has been framing this debate is around this idea of toxic masculinity mm -hmm. and the idea being that some of the traditionally associated traits of masculinity are actually harmful for men. There was a, a sort of famous article put out by the APA that described things like competitiveness and aggression and stoicism as generally harmful to men and that what we needed to do was construct a new form or new identity of masculinity that could raise a generation of men away from those toxic traits. Now, there's been a kind of opposite reaction to that, where one side of the debate is saying we need to deconstruct and reconstruct a new form of masculinity. And yeah. then on the opposite side, you've had this kind of equal reaction that said, no, 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 those traditionally masculine traits are, are your identity and your salvation. You need to indulge them and lean into the raw masculine traits. For me, the thing both of those have tended to do is they've tended to focus on externals. They've had this idea that we can fix men's problems by like mm -hmm. marketing campaigns and slogans and and yeah. framing new new cultural identities around them. But as a believer, I've always recognized that to really grow as a man, to become more like Christ is an internal work more than an external work. And mm -hmm. so it, unfortunately, the church, in my opinion, hasn't been able to come along well and say, okay, well setting all the controversy aside, how do we actually just get better as men? That seems to be the thing most men are suffering from right now. We yeah. may have really strong opinions in the debate, but just the actual work of growing to become better seems to be something that many of us are, are struggling to find a way forward on. Yeah. It's just such a weird time uh, in culture to be talking about manhood. And the the thing is, when it, when we're thinking about what it looks like to become a masculine man, I love what you said. Like it's it's first, you know, we can have all the debates and everything that's controversial, but like, dude, how are how are we just doing personally as men and becoming more better men? And the thing is, 
that the facts always prove out like and the statistics always show even in the secular world when men step up and become better men everything gets better you know and that it's hard to argue those facts like education changes crime goes down prison rate like everything gets better when men are just like accepting their role to become better, better men i'm super interested in the the title of your book the five masculine instincts like walk me through that what is the premise of that and like what what are you unpacking there yeah. So for a long time, particularly in the church, we've been having, in my view, kind of the same conversations with men. And those have tended to center around the typical sins that men fall into. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a valuable conversation we should be having. I'm not suggesting we we don't, yeah. but we've just spent a lot of time talking about money, sex, and power, You know, yep. these ways of framing male sins. Yep. Uh, and what I see in a lot of the men I pastor is there's kind of a, a shallowness when it comes to understanding why those particular sins or why are certain t- sins continually temptation for me, this sort of digging deeper into what's mm-hmm. motivating me, what are the kind of desires beneath my actions. I came across uh, in one of Shakespeare's plays, he has a monologue, it's a pretty famous line, all the world's a stage and each of us mere players on it. And, mm-hmm. and he goes on to describe each man plays these seven parts in his life. Mm-hmm. It's known as the seven stages of man. And the first and the last, according to Shakespeare's images, is birth and death. He tries to make the point that we're born into the world dependent on someone else's care. We usually die dependent on someone else's care. There's a kind of circularity. But in the middle, he has these five images of what it looks like for a man to grow and develop. And I noticed right away some of those images in my own life. And I noticed them really quickly in the men I was pastoring as well. And then it wasn't long before I started connecting them to biblical characters that these, I use the word instincts. C.S. Lewis describes instincts as behavior as if from knowledge. So in other words, we act as if we've made a decision or we've rationalized that behavior when really it's something inside us that feels like common sense, that feels like knowledge that maybe we've never actually questioned. That two men can, can sin in similar ways, but actually be motivated toward that sin by very different impulses, desires, or instincts. So what Shakespeare gave me was these tools for looking at my own life, Shakespeare being one of the great psychological writers. He's trying to uncover human nature. He gave gave me these tools for recognizing what might be beneath the sin as the instincts that were driving men. And then as I started to discover those in scripture, I took each of Shakespeare's images, gave it a one-word instinct, and then paired it with a, a biblical character to help men recognize that instinct in their own life. That's a super fascinating approach. Break them down for me. Like, what what, what are the the five instincts? Yeah, so I'll list them out, and then I'll come back and do the biblical character with each. So the five yeah. instincts are sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy. So in the first one, sarcasm, Shakespeare depicts it as a, a reluctant schoolboy dragging himself to school. And I find in that image the story of Cain, and we deal with some of Cain's sarcasm and his unwillingness to mature, to grow. Adventure in Shakespeare's depiction is the the thwarted lover. Uh, It's not just romantic love. It's this sort of romantic view of life, adventure, conquests, love, and romance. Well, of course, it was pretty quick. I resonated with Samson and that image and talked to men about this desire for identity through adventure. The third being ambition, uh, Shakespeare describes as, this is actually the warrior image. The man is full of, of oaths and customs, and he's ready to right every wrong and quick to quarrel. He's got a vision for the future that he wants to accomplish. Moses is one of the great leaders in Israel's history, and his ambition is really a struggle throughout his life. So it became a good tool for unpacking ambition. 
reputation. I love the description in Shakespeare of it. The man starts to dress and cut his beard the way he's expected and starts to put on a little weight. (laughs) This is the man who's had a little bit of success. And all of a sudden, the reputation he's earned becomes more and more important to him. And he begins to protect that reputation. Mm -hmm. You see that temptation over and over in the stories of David. And it becomes a really compelling way to think about integrity versus public image. And then the last one, apathy. I use the story of Abraham. Shakespeare has a great phrase in this one where he says, the world becomes too wide. That as we age, there comes a time where we start to feel the full complexity of the world, how little control we actually have, how difficult relationships are over time and disappointing in many ways. And that there's a kind of instinct that men have to disengage from that, a kind of apathy that sets in. And you actually see that in some interesting ways in Abraham's life and the way that God calls him out of that by the tests that Abraham faces as well. So sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy. Is that a continuum? Or is that like you you pick one of the five that you're you're seeing in yourself? Or is it like, no, this these are the stages like you were talking about the from the, the kind of the, the one sandwiched in between birth and death? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Shakespeare depicts them as stages we move through. But I think it's pretty obvious, and I think Shakespeare would have agreed even by some of his characters, that we can jump around. These are probably all present to some degree. You could be looking for a great adventure and fail miserably and experience a kind of apathy out of that. So I don't think these have to be chronological. And I always point out that they're not, you know, at the end of the day, there's nothing scientific. It's not as if these aren't personality traits. These aren't requirements of masculinity. They're a tool Shakespeare gives us and I've tried to use to help men really do an even more important work, which is how do you just dig into what's motivating you? How do you check those things that seem natural instincts to you so that you might be able to mature that instinct into a better instinct, one of faith and character? You give us some practical examples, maybe from those stages where like, so if we're Maybe we'll just jump around to some of those stages and just say, how does this flesh out where we're seeing some of the behaviors, but more importantly, the motivations behind the behavior? Like, what does this look like? Put some flesh on the bones here for a guy that's listening. Yeah, I think the sarcasm one at the beginning is interesting, which most men, when I say that, kind of laugh and say, oh, yeah, I've got some sarcasm. Yeah, yeah. None of these instincts are, are sinful or wrong. I mean, certainly we should have ambition. I'm not trying to say men shouldn't. And scripture encourages us to think about our reputation. It's a good reputation is one of the qualifications for leadership. The problem is that these instincts can be blindly indulged. And if, if they control us versus us controlling them, they have a tendency to lead us to places or to destruction. So the Cain story is a fascinating one because, of course, the big question in Cain's story is, why does God accept Abel's sacrifice and reject Cain's sacrifice? And commentators and pastors for years have tried to come up with answers to that questions and sort of subtly read between the lines. But the truth is the, the scriptures just don't tell us. What's interesting is, though, Cain is frustrated because his sacrifice is rejected, and God comes down and initiates a conversation with Cain and says to him, Cain, why are you downcast? Don't you realize that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to rule over you? It's the first place sin is mentioned in the Bible. Of course, Adam and Eve sinned, but God is actually bringing the topic up to Cain, saying it's in you. Do you realize it? Well, the logical thing for Cain to do is to just ask the question, why? Why did you reject my sacrifice and not Abel's? And he has this opportunity, God initiating it to grow and mature and to understand the kind of worship God wants. But what does Cain do? He doesn't respond to God. He calls his brother out into a field and murders him. And when God comes down and asks, where is Abel? He cuts back at God with this sarcasm, am I my brother's keeper? 
So what this instinct is, is there's a kind of sarcasm that's just a joke and we're being dumb and having fun. But there's also a kind of sarcasm that can be a clever guise for contempt. If you find yourself having a hard time taking anything seriously, if you're always blowing every conversation off as a joke, if you're unwilling or you're impulsive and reactive to people questioning you or or challenging you, maybe what's going on is what was going on for Kane, this instinct to sort of laugh off or make little of anything that might question you or challenge you or force you to grow. For each of the instincts, I pair them with a spiritual practice that I think can be a way of checking that instinct. If it yeah, I would, that, that's exactly where I was going to go. Like, what? Okay, what? How do? Yeah, what's the practical truth? thing? Yeah, right? what, yeah, yeah. So, Cain, I suggest this idea of intentional humility, and humility is a weird practice because we sort of imagine, okay, well, if I don't boast and I'm not prideful, then maybe I just sort of get humility thrown in, right? How do yeah. you work on humility? Right. I use the definition in the book for humility: self-suspicion. That a person with humility is willing to be suspicious enough of their first thought, their first reaction, Mm. to hold open the possibility that maybe I'm wrong, maybe what I'm feeling isn't right, or maybe God's doing something in this moment that I'm supposed to learn from it. And just that little exercise of, here's my first gut reaction, could it be wrong? That actually opens the door to receiving this divine lesson that uh, Cain found it so difficult to do. So what does it look like to if I'm experiencing this instinct to just say, how do I go about practicing a kind of humility that introduces self-suspicion whenever I find myself most reactive or threatened or feeling a need to react to a situation? I love that term, self-suspicion. Like that, is that what it was? I, yeah, I said yeah. It back, I'm like, was that? Yeah, you got that, it right. Yep. Yeah, and and who knows, maybe you are right, but just yeah. that willingness to pause right. and entertain the suspicion of what I think first is really the, the entire doorway to growing and maturing and developing character. Dude, so many marriages would be saved or would be better if we just started with that. Like if that's all we took out of today's yep. your book or from the from the interview is and you just like came into marriage that way with that kind of posture as a man to 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 have the humility to say what if I'm wrong on this or to even just take I think there are a lot of men who are experiencing some conflict in their marriage and it might be because they're not taking what the criticism or the suggestions or whatever their wife might be offering. Seriously, I'm just kind of laughing at, well, she doesn't really know what she's talking about. I, I know better. I've got this all figured out. Man, if we had some guys with some self-suspicion that and some humility, I think we'd see a lot of growth in marriages. So that I really like that one. Let's go on. What's the second one? Yeah. So adventure is the story of Samson. And there's this cultural narrative right now that to know who you are, to have this meaningful identity, you have to leave tradition and family and place and and home and oftentimes your religious ideas you grew up with and you have to go out there and find your identity on adventure basically you've got kids this is everything disney makes right this is the moana story everything you've got to leave home and go find yourself in this adventure your true identity samson is not although he has this nazarite vow not to cut his hair or touch a corpse or drink wine he didn't take that vow voluntarily an angel gave that to his mother and he was raised as a nazarite And he's also living at a time when Israel was not a powerful kingdom. They didn't have a king or a capital or an army. They're sort of a marginalized people in the hills and raiding parties of the Philistines keep coming in and taking everything they had grown. So he's in this sort of like 
kind of backwoods, unpowerful, insignificant people. And then on top of that, he's got this weird family custom that he's been born into. Well, it's no surprise that he finds himself looking down on the cities of Philistia and becoming more and more obsessed with them. And, and story after story, he finds himself going down to Philistia. He's looking for something, right? He's desperate. This idea of adventure is about finding something. Often it involves romance and women, but it's also about the risk and the danger and Slowly, he has these powerful moments of God's anointing, right? This divine strength that comes over him. The first of those is a lion rushes upon him, and it says the Spirit of the Lord came over him, and he tore the lion apart like a goat with his bare hands. This is this moment of like superhuman strength. Sometime later, he was passing back through that place. And he stopped to go look at where he had done this feat again, probably like reminiscing that 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 great day. Yeah. And he finds the carcass of the lion. And as he approaches, he hears bees and there's a hive of honeybees inside the carcass with honey. And the scripture says he scrapes it out, eats it and goes on his way. Well, it's a really strange image. What in the world is that all about? The story? Yeah. The language is really interesting in the Hebrew there. It's actually he, in the ruin of the lion, there was a congregation of bees and honey. And I think what was happening there was a kind of image God was giving him of who he could be, that in the ruin of the Philistines, he would lead with this miraculous strength. Hmm. He would make a place for the congregation of Israel in this land flowing with milk and honey. It's really this powerful image. Wow. But what does Samson do with it? He scrapes it out, eats it, and then he goes on to a banquet and turns it into a drunken riddle that he ends up gambling over. Hmm. Well, that little story plays over and over in his life. God gives him some divine experience, some great moment of strength, and he trivializes it. He makes little out of it. His real issue is discernment, which is this intentional practice I set alongside, and a kind of discernment that only comes through commitment. So in other words, to really see what's going on around us, to understand the story we're already a part of, to understand this adventure that we're in with this place we may not love, this family that may be difficult, this job that maybe isn't our favorite. It takes a kind of commitment and discernment to be able to recognize what God is doing in that. I love to use the illustration of the Lord of the Rings. There's a moment where Sam and Frodo are close to destroying the ring, the end, and Frodo begins to lose hope. And I didn't realize it was going to be like this, how hard it was going to be. He's just discouraged and frustrated. He actually starts cursing the ground and the air and the water. He's just having a moment. And Sam says to him, well, maybe this is the way all great adventures are, that when the people are in the middle of them, they don't feel like adventures. I want to say that to men as well, too, that this life that may feel boring to you, well, perhaps that's exactly what a meaningful life in the middle of it feels like. A real adventure is always one that tests endurance and commitment and faithfulness in the midst of it. And so, uh, yeah, this instinct for adventure is one I think we have to be really careful to check with a deeper discernment and commitment. Yeah. Uh, one thing I say often is bored men are dangerous men. We're looking for adventure. And I think that there's this God-given desire to be part of something that scares you a little bit, where God would say, fear not, fear not. It's a message I've given a bunch of times and I've written about, but we often channel that longing towards either really dumb or really dangerous places. Dumb, silly things could just be, you know, painting my chest and cheering for a football team or a sports team or whatever, because I'm just looking for some kind of battle to, to cheer on and to get excited about. But on the flip side of that, there's some really dangerous adventures that guys are looking for and, and sinful ones that are causing destruction or will cause massive destruction. I, yeah, this I is one too where I think the yeah. instincts are so important because what we've tended to do is we've just talked about adventure, right? Like men need adventure, men need adventure. 
there is certainly a kind of man, like when we get to the end and you start talking about apathy, there's a kind of instinct that needs to be kind of shaken and woken up to what God is doing and calling you into, that life does have a narrative and you need to engage that narrative. But there's also another kind of instinct that can't ever commit to anything that's mm-hmm. constantly moving on to the next thing because it's so desperate for this feeling of adrenaline and adventure that it actually loses the thing God is doing. And that's where I hope the book is helpful for men in that it's not enough to just say men need adventure. Well, what is the actual instinct in me? Hmm. What am I overindulging? How do I need to check it? Perhaps you are sensing correctly. And there is this adventure God's calling you into in this thing, but you can't trust your instincts to get that right. You need Hmm. these practices of faith to help discern what is the right way given who you are and what God is doing in the moment. Yeah, I'd like to zoom in on that a little bit. I know we're hanging on the second one for a little longer, but I'd like to zoom into it because I do feel like there are a lot of guys who will resonate with that, who feel like, man, I'm just show- I'm going to work, putting in my out, you know, 40, 60, whatever hours a week. I come home, it's chaos. Kids are running around. I'm trying to help with whatever. The weekends like fly by. Basically, it just feels mundane and a little bit chaotic and surviving. And yet my soul is just longing for more. Like help a guy from your perspective, help a guy navigate those feelings. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's use Samson's story. You know, Samson, the way his story plays out is the more he tries to indulge this other thing he's looking for, the more it actually betrays him. It's not Mm -hmm. like he goes on this adventure and it was great, but I shouldn't have done it. I mean, each time he goes on one of these adventures, the thing falls apart on him, right? Mm -hmm. He ends up sort of trapped. He ends up rescued by this divine strength, but then almost seeming small and less discerning because of it. It doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. And of course, that great scene where he gives up his secret to Delilah, we tend to remember that story as she betrayed him. But you know, three times she asks for the secret to his strength. And each time he gives a kind of half truth and then assassins pounce out and he defeats them. Well, after the second time, you would imagine Maybe it was coincidence before, but at some point you figure she's in on this, right? I mean, this thing (laughs) keeps playing. But yet this fourth time, she presses him and why won't you tell me your secret? And he finally does. And there's a great phrase in the story where he says, if you cut my hair, I will become like any other man. And it almost feels as if that's what Samson actually wants, just to be done with all this divine calling, to be done with this divine strength. I just want to be like everyone else tired, exhausted, this chasing of something better. It hasn't delivered the thing that he imagined it would. It hasn't, all the adventures haven't made him wiser, haven't made his life more meaningful. I was having this conversation with a a reader a few weeks ago who said that when he was younger, he felt this passion to go and hike the Appalachian Trail. And he said, I imagined I was on a kind of pilgrimage that I was going to find myself and find God. And he said, you know, really, I, I ended up just making terrible Detroit choices and acting out some, some lust along the way. And he said, by the end, I realized I was more the prodigal than I was a pilgrim, that I was really running from home and that it wasn't going anywhere meaningful. Wow. Well, Samson's story ends with him being captured by the Philistines, his eyes gouged out, he's chained to a wall, his head shaved, all of these things that defined him as this man of adventure end up gone, taken from him. He can't see, he can't go, his strength has left him. But there's a great phrase. It's one of my favorite in the whole story where it says, but the hair began to grow back on his head. I'm not even sure Samson would have realized it, right? His hands are chained. He's doing this work. But this divine thing that God wanted to do in his life, this bigger story that so often he couldn't recognize in the moment, God, by his grace, gives back to him 
And in that final moment, it is his strength that ends up being the last act of his life that defines him. And so I want to say to those guys, which I get it, trust me, you know, the, the job's not what you thought it would be. The chaos at home is not what you imagined. Life didn't turn out into this great adventure like you thought it would. And you're trying to pay bills and mortgage and the dog needs to let out. I get it. But the hair grows back, that there's something of that story, something of that bigger thing that God is doing, that even when you don't recognize it or can't make it happen is there. And what we really need as men is a willingness to say, okay, God, help me discern the things you are putting in my life that are Mm. good, that are meaningful. I see all the problems, but don't let me overlook the good. And that takes a certain amount of commitment and a willingness to discern those things that a fixation on what I would rather have and where I would rather be and what it should feel like usually keeps you from recognizing. Yeah. Man, that's really, really good. I feel like we could spend another hour just unpacking all of that. For the sake of the conversation, let's keep moving towards the other. So let's hit number three. Sure. Uh, this is the one that personally for me, I feel the most strong. All mm-hmm. these I think are, I've, I've had some experience with, but ambition is mm-hmm. one. Look, I'm a writer and a pastor and you know, there's nothing, nothing like godly ambition you know, to sort of help you lose perspective. And so uh, Moses is a character of ambition in that you know, the Moses is born, adopted into this Egyptian home. He's raised kind of the best education, wealth, every possibility before him. For whatever reason, he finds himself identifying with the Hebrew people. He sees two of those Hebrew servants being beaten by an Egyptian slave master, and Moses rises up and strikes down the Egyptian, murders him. The book of Acts tells us that he thought that if when he did that, the Hebrew people would rally behind him and he would become their leader. I mean, it is clear and simple, an act of ambition. I act thinking this will kick off a whole revolution with me as the leader. Well, it doesn't work. The two Hebrews that he saved the next day start mocking him. Who made you prince over us? And so this great ambition, this great moment of action that he steps out in, not only fails, but it becomes a kind of of, a joke. They end up mocking him for it. And so he retreats to the wilderness for 40 years. And when Moses is at the burning bush, when God calls him back to free the Hebrew people, you would imagine, isn't this the very thing Moses had wanted? This was the thing he tried to initiate. But now 40 years later, he says, "Ah, I'm slow of speech. You know, they're not going to believe that you actually sent me. Well, can you send someone to help? And then finally he says to God, can't you just get somebody else to do it? And there's this question, how can this be the same Moses? How can I describe Moses as a person of ambition where he seems so reluctant? That's usually the way we think of Moses. But I think that's the actual lived experience of ambition. There's nothing like ambition that in one moment can make you feel so empowered that anything's possible, that you're going to change the world and do something great. And then the next day, feel defeated and humiliated and disillusioned, and I'm not good enough, and I'll never be able to do it. It's not as if one day you were ambitious and the next you weren't. I think ambition sees a vision, something you want to accomplish, and it starts to measure everything in the world, yourself included, against that vision's fulfillment. And so sometimes we measure those things and we feel empowered by it. And other times we measure our life and our situation against that vision and we feel discouraged by it. Both of those are really this instinct of defining everything around me by that ambition that for me has been the lived experience of ambition highs, but also really low lows. And I think you see that in Moses's life as well. Yeah. So what's the good news there? Let's bring us yeah. back to the gospel truth again with that. You know, what's interesting about Moses is Moses later on, this plays out when God calls him to speak to the rock and provide water for the grumbling and constantly complaining Israelites that he, Moses is exhausted with at this point. 
Then Moses goes out taking those instructions. He gathers Israel. He chastises them. Listen, you rebels. He says, must we provide water from this rock for you? That's interesting language because it wasn't God's language. And then he raises his staff and strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. For that act, God will not allow Moses into the promised land. He leads, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, he leads the people to the edge. He dies on Mount Nebo, literally looking out over the Jordan River Valley, the promised land before him, finally on the edge of that great ambition. And we often feel like, I mean, come on, God, like he hits the rock instead of speaking to it and he loses the whole thing for that. But really, this is that ongoing struggle with ambition that Moses's ambition becomes so overpowering, so controlling in his life that he starts to judge Israel. He starts to mistake his emotions for God's emotions. Must mm. we provide water from this rock for you? Mm. It leads to a place of disobedience, that there's actually something pretty profound going on in his inability to let go of this vision, his desperation to see it fulfilled as he would have it. And so his punishment is to set down that ambition, that he will get to the very end and be right close to fulfilling it and have to let go of it. And so I recommend for people with ambition, I put myself in this group, the intentional practice of Sabbath rest. And I don't mean the kind of, we sometimes think of Sabbath as if I take one day off, I'll be more productive on the other six. I mean the kind of Sabbath that says I will only ever accomplish six sevenths of what I'm capable of doing in life, that I will intentionally achieve less than I could through obsession and determination and focus. And that margin of one seventh that I'm going to create is going to be space for God to speak to me and lead me and help me keep perspective. So this ambition doesn't blind me or leave me bitter and frustrated to sort of wrap it up. One of the great moments in Moses's life is I listened to a professor one time lecturing on Jesus's transfiguration and the fact that it was probably this mountain near the sea of Galilee well, when Jesus is transfigured before his disciples, who is it that's standing with him in the promised land near the Sea of Galilee? Well, it's Elijah and it's Moses. And I found it really moving that Moses does make it to the promised land, wow. but not in his own earthly body, his own earthly ambition, but by Christ's grace and who he is. So I would say there's nothing we ultimately set down that God doesn't give us, although it may not be in our control or in our measurement, our view, our vision, the way we have it in our ambition. Hey guys, I want to take a quick pause to tell you about a really cool resource for your family. It's called The Biggest Story Bible Storybook by Kevin DeYoung. The Bible is a big book about a great God. From beginning to end, each page tells about the God who created the world, who acted in history, and who continues to act in the present. In The Biggest Story Bible Storybook, Pastor Kevin retells this grand story for children ages 6 through 12 through 104 short chapters. Beginning in Genesis and ending with Revelation, DeYoung provides engaging retellings of various Bible stories explaining how they fit into the overarching storyline. Each reading is coupled with beautiful illustrations by award-winning artist Don Clark and concludes with a reflective prayer. This is perfect for bedtime stories or to read together as a family. Both children and you as a dad will experience the captivating story of the Bible in a really easy-to-understand, compelling way. You can pick up The Biggest Story Bible Storybook wherever books are sold, or you can visit crossway.org forward slash plus to find out how you can get 30% off. Again, you can pick it up wherever books are sold, or you can go to crossway.org forward slash plus to find out how to get 30% off. I have a feeling that a lot of guys are listening to this right now, and just on the first three, you're like, I'm not sure I'm ready to keep going. Like, I'm convicted <laughs> by, the, by the first, just the first three. There's a lot of conviction there, and a lot, but a lot of good. So I love the 
gospel truth that you led us to there with the rest, man. That's some good stuff. All right. I'm just trying to keep us on the sake. I know, time. I know. We could go a while on I each know, this of these. Is so I'll, good. I'll speed it up. So No, no, this is really good, man. All right, number four. What was the fourth one? Yeah, so the fourth one is reputation. In so many ways, David, but also Saul's story, is a story, a struggle with integrity versus this public image, this expectation of them. So Saul yeah. just gets eaten up by this. He is made king because they take one look at him and he's tall and handsome. And they say, that's exactly what a king should look like. Yeah. And so he becomes king, not because he's capable of being king, but because he looks like a king. He has the image of a king and he struggles and really just becomes unravels under that expectation, the weight of that. David comes into that same world where there are expectations and a public image, a reputation to keep. At moments, David gets this right. When he faces Goliath, Saul tries to put his royal armor on him. You need to look the part. And David rightfully understands, no, I'll face him as who I am, a shepherd with a sling. It's God that will empower me, not this image, not this, this reputation of being a warrior. He also gets it right in places like uh, when he goes to move the ark to Jerusalem, he kicks off this parade. It seems to be more sort of PR. He's leading it as a king. The word is not they're, they're worshiping, but they're sort of celebrating as they go and singing and dancing. David's bringing the ark to the city of David. It sort of feels like a political moment. And then, of course, uh, Uzzah reaches up and steadies the ark when it starts to stumble and he's struck dead. And this whole parade sort of, I hear like record scratches, like the whole thing just stops and they decide to just put the ark in a house nearby and abandon it. A few months go by. David comes back and does it again, but this time he sacrifices and he's dressed, we're specifically told, in a linen ephod. It's the simple garment that like a servant in the temple would wear. It's the same thing that Hannah sewed for Samuel at the beginning of, of 1 Samuel. So just a simple, humble garment. It's so humble that when he comes into Jerusalem, his wife sees him and she actually mocks him for it. This is where we get this idea of David dancing naked. She says, how you exposed yourself before your servant's servants. I don't think she's actually saying you were naked. What she's really saying is you didn't look the part of a king. You humiliated yourself by being presenting yourself beneath who you actually are. Hmm. But David seems at times to really understand that it's more important to be true to who he is and humble before God than to lean into this public image. But at other times he gets it wrong. The sin with Bathsheba was a significant one, but when he murders Uriah to cover it up, to protect his image and to think he got away with it, you see a side of David that's hard to reconcile that all of a sudden this idea of keeping the image of a king becomes so important to him that he acts in ways and sins in ways that are hard for us to understand how a man after God's own heart could behave. So this tension for David of public image versus integrity is one I think we all deal with. And I like to define integrity as integrity doesn't just mean I always do what is right. Integrity means I'm willing to recognize and own even the things that I do wrong, that there's no part of my life that's unaccounted for, that hasn't been inventoried, that I'm, I'm aware of the good and the bad in who I am. And we've been talking about this intentional practice to set alongside it. I recommend confession. And confession is one we talk a lot about. There's different kinds, confession to God, confession to one another, as scripture calls us to. But I want to use it in the broadest term of just, I'm willing to acknowledge and take responsibility for everything that's in my life. One of the things I love about David's story is we live in a world where politicians spend millions of dollars to like hire PR firms and lawyers to pay off any sort of unsavory things that might leak into the media. Like we'll just, we'll cover it up. 
David is in an ancient world where he could have kept people from writing about him. You know what I mean? They can burn the books. He can put an end to all these chronicles being written. But yet, not only do we have these reports of David's life, we have this full history of Psalms of David exposing his own sins and, and repenting of those sins that none of that's burnt or buried at the end of his life, that we have all of this life of David from the good to the bad to be able to learn from. That's the kind of confession of, I'm not going to just try to live out of convincing people I'm something. I'm going to be able to, even if it's just in personal confession before God or with a close friend, I'm going to actually do the hard work of owning and working into my identity, the reality of, of who I am totally, this idea of confession. Love that. One of the uh, practices, uh, exercises that we do in our family leadership program is we have guys write out a Venn diagram, basically, of who are you in public and mm. who are you in private? Are there any things that overlap? And basically, they have to number out like, oh, man, I have a lot more personality characteristics in my private life that aren't that aren't consistent with who I am in public. And uh, yep. it's, it turns out to be one of the most, I think, eye-opening exercises that the guys go through. Well, it's such a powerful tool, even if you don't, because I'm not suggesting, hey, you need to like air your laundry to every person you meet, like just tell everybody everything. Don't, you know, get on a podcast and just unload all the details. That's not what I'm saying. It takes wisdom. But that little act, just a willingness to even with myself sit down and acknowledge in writing who I am, the full inventory of it is a really powerful thing. Remember, again, the goal of this is to just check that instinct, Mm. that there's a kind of instinct that would lead you down the path of, I'm just going to lean into what I'm good at. I'm going to cover up everything else. I'm going to just protect this public image. Mm. But just that willingness to personally check myself on it, breaks some of the power of that instinct and allows you to grow and mature in better ways. Which again, takes a a lot of humility and a lot of self-awareness to say, yep. yeah, this is uh, Holy Spirit exposing me the yep. areas that I don't want to, I want exposed. And I mean, a lot of the, the, th- the needle that kind of runs through a lot of this is humility, right? And uh, sure. self-awareness. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. All right. Let's hit that last one, man. Sure. So the last one is apathy. It's strange mm-hmm. uh, maybe to think of of Abraham as an apathetic character because we think of him as the great example of faith. I mean, Abraham leaves home and follows God, not even knowing where God's leading him. And he does yeah. it, which is a remarkable thing. I mean, surely not apathetic. But there are moments in Abraham's life where things don't go well and get complicated. And usually it's because of an, an a, a struggle he has to fully engage the complexity of that moment. Of course, the greatest example of this is he has waited decades for this fulfillment of a promise to have a son, an heir. And as he's approaching 100, it's becoming almost a joke like that they would still have a son after all these years. And so Sarah comes up with this plan to produce an heir through Hagar, their servant. Abraham seemed, well, Abraham should have known better, but he, he seems to sort of apathetically go along with her plan. But maybe even worse, after Hagar gives birth to a son, Ishmael, it creates tension and conflict in their home. And Abraham actually says to Sarah, you deal with it. You know, he, he sort of checks out, like, I don't want any part of this. Yeah. And so Sarah begins to mistreat Hagar to the point where Hagar flees into the wilderness with Ishmael. I mean, his family just unravels. And it is primarily, number one, his inability to lead in good decisions. And two, his inability to engage the complexity of that brokenness as well. Well, Abraham's story goes on. And uh, finally, Isaac is born. 
And when you get to the end of Genesis chapter one, it feels as if his story is wrapping up and you'll turn the page and you'll go into Isaac's story. He settles in Beersheba. He plants a tamarisk tree there. It's kind of an image of retirement, right? He's settling down. He signs peace treaties with his neighbor. Isaac is finally there. God is taking care of Ishmael and Hagar. So although they're not with him, at least there's some resolution of some sorts. Abraham is, is rich. He's finally settled in the land. He has his son. And then you turn the page and instead of getting Isaac's story, you get, but God tested Abraham. And it's the story of God calling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. There's a lot we could say about that passage. But to me, the point I want to make is there is a kind of instinct that once I have my life under my control and the way I want it, maybe it's not everything I imagine, but my, my recliner and my hobbies and the things I enjoy and the relationships I can handle, then I sort of retreat into those things and disengage from everything else in the world around me. And I think Abraham's greatest moment of risk was this moment sitting in Beersheba under that tree. He certainly had faith and believed in God generally, but what did he have need for faith for anymore? What did he have need for God for anymore? He had everything he had wanted. All the promises were finally fulfilled. And it's in that moment, God forces him back into a position of faith back into this action. And so I want to say to men who are struggling with this sense of, man, I just want to be left alone. Leave me in my hobbies. Yeah. Like I'm just only want to, I don't want the complexity. I just, whatever I can control, just leave me to that. That God calls us, the only way to really live by faith is to sacrifice. And sometimes that sacrifice is time. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's just comfort and things we can control. It's engaging something that's complicated and we don't know how it will resolve itself. But if you retreat back into just what you can control, you end up robbing yourself of this life of faith and the recognition of what faith alone can provide. And so Abraham ends up being this great example of faith, but he has to shake that apathy to engage back into that faith that he will ultimately become known for. I think there are a lot of guys who would probably admit that they feel pretty apathetic towards life. And that's that's going to be a convicting and hopefully encouraging word for them. It also made me think like, there's, I think subconsciously I have in my mind that like I'll get to a certain age and I'll just kind of get to coast spiritually. Like, all right, God, I, I yep. put in the hours, man. I like, raised you know, the kids. Yeah, I worked I the, the job. Yeah, I yeah. gave to the church and volunteered. It, exactly. I did all of it. And I think there are a lot of men in our church, older men, who feel that. And I'm encouraged and also like, I don't know. I don't know. God, God just doesn't quit. Like your sanctification, like God's... <laughs> his desire to continue to produce righteousness in you and to continue to make like, that's going to, until your last breath, man, God is going to be chasing you down. Yeah. And, uh, and that's good news. And it's also like, uh, Oh, I get why Paul said like run the race to finish. Like don't grow weary, like keep running, keep running. Yeah. Cause and there's know. nothing on all these instincts. There's nothing to say that like, Hey, if you can't enjoy a vacation or you can't like go on a little retirement, like right. there's nothing wrong with even, even apathy. There are seasons where maybe we need to disengage some things for some mm. rest. But the problem is when it becomes our instinct, when it's the thing we indulge first, when it's the thing that goes unquestioned in our life, the story of Abraham is not that that apathy paid off. It's that every time that apathy set in, it invited destruction and complexity. It ruined relationships that you you imagine you're escaping the complexity through that apathy and retreat, but you're actually just inviting and creating more of it in your life. That the only way to really resolve those painful things is to sacrifice your way into them, to lean into them. There's a great phrase in Hebrews uh, where it talks about Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. 
where it says that Abraham believed that God was able even to raise him from the dead. I love that word even because it implies this range of possibilities that Abraham acts, leans into by faith. I don't know how God's going to do this, but I think he's capable of doing it even through resurrection. And so by faith, I'm going to lean into even the uncertainty, the unknown. That's the only way to really steward and care and bear responsibility for those things you do care about. Wow. Chase, man, your perspective on the scriptures is really refreshing. And the way that you kind of storytell the, the, these stories that point us back to Jesus and point us back to what Christ wants to do in us as men is re- it's just really refreshing, man. It's re- been really fun. I wish we had like another hour to sl- <laughs> more slowly unpack these things. But Well, they're great uh, stories and they're, they're first and foremost the Bible stories. So I just yeah. try to come along and recognize <laughs> yeah. how they expose us and, and shape us and offer us a better path. So they are great stories. Yeah. Well, and, and fortunately you, uh, you wrote all of this down in a book. So <laughs> tell us where the guys can get your book and, uh, how they can stay connected with you. Yeah. So the book, the five masculine instincts, I've got a website, uh, the five masculine instincts.com with the number five, or you could Google masculine instincts. You'll find it. There's actually a free online assessment there. It's nothing scientific, but 25 questions. It'll mm. help kind of rank these instincts by percentage and mm. maybe give you an entry point into just thinking about what might be going on in your life. Um, there's some video interviews on there, a study guide, but the book's available anywhere you buy books. So Amazon, of course, anywhere else. There's also pretty soon the audiobook should be out. So if you're an audiobook oh, cool. guy, be looking yeah. for that, but it's available in all formats. So anywhere you buy books. Man, this has been really fun. Uh, I felt like we took a deep dive and yet still somehow only scratched the surface. So, man, thank you so much for hanging out today. It's been really, really helpful. Yeah, well, I'm honored to do it. And what a great show and uh, what a great thing to offer your time to her, becoming a, a better dad, a better husband, a, a better believer. I'm just grateful for the opportunity. Yeah, man. Thank you. I appreciate you again. Hey guys, hope that interview was helpful for you on your journey of becoming more like Jesus and helping your family do the same. Again, if you want to partner with us to see this gospel message equipping men all around the world, you can join us by going to dadtired.com forward slash give. I love you guys. I'll see you next week.